0: The grouping will either be obvious or not obvious. So I'll read, I'll read the questions. Doesn't the emphasis in Buddhism on freeing oneself from the round of death and physical rebirth contain in it the implied belief that there is nothing, that there is something inherently mistaken or inferior or wrong with physical existence, a sort of devaluing of life on this planet? All things considered, what's wrong with seeking what's pleasant and avoiding what's unpleasant? <laughs> Lots of people live their lives this way, and I'm damned if I can give them a good reason why they shouldn't. <laughs> so. I think, I think uh, that question, uh, there could be many Dharma talks in response just to that question. But in some sense, I think we all (coughs) intuitively know the answer to that, because um, if we didn't, we wouldn't be here. This is not most people's idea (coughs) of a pleasant vacation. You know, and so if you really felt that seeking what's pleasant is the main reason or activity of life, this is probably not the place that you would come. I think it's actually framed the wrong way. Even though, first, we could all relate to that. You know, what's wrong with seeking pleasant and avoiding unpleasant? It seems, at some level, rather obvious. But I think it's the wrong question. I think it's not really about seeking pleasure and avoiding pain. I think the, the more meaningful question is, are we seeking happiness and avoiding suffering? Because that's really what we want. What is the reason you know, for seeking pleasure? I think it's not for the pleasure itself, it's because we think that is what's going to bring us happiness, and that's the motivating force. That's why we do it. Sort of the beauty and the clarity of the Buddha's enlightenment was that he addressed this very question you know, what is the source of happiness? How can we come out of the suffering in our lives? And we need some clarity. We need some profound insight into this, because it's not immediately obvious where happiness is. Now, it reminded me of uh, one of my favorite Nasruddin stories. Now, you know, Nasruddin was this Sufi teaching figure, kind of half madman, crazy, fool, wise man. There are a lot of, a lot of teaching stories in the Sufi tradition about him. So one day he was outside his house looking in the ground uh, under a lamppost. He was looking for the key to his house. You know, he had lost it. So he's looking, 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 and then friends come and they're helping him look. You know, they can't find the key. And finally one of his friends asked, Well where did you lose it? And Nazruddin says, Well I lost it in the house. So they said, well, why are you looking under the lamppost? Because there's more light here. <laughs> well, I think we're a little bit like Mullah Nasruddin, and we look for happiness in what is apparently the most obvious place, you know, where the light is shining on it, in pleasure. But in looking deeper, which really is what our Dharma practice is about, It doesn't take long to figure out that suffering in our lives is caused by the defilements or the unwholesome qualities in our mind. It's greed which causes suffering, it's aversion and hatred which cause suffering, it's envy, it's jealousy, it's fear, it's pride, it's ill will, it's a whole long list of defilements. That's what causes the suffering. And what what is the cause of happiness in our lives? And this is not theoretical, this is not philosophical. We we really need to look and see what is the cause of happiness. It doesn't take that much meditative insight to see that when the mind is filled with love, or generosity, or kindness, or compassion, or awareness, or concentration, or stillness, or calm, or peace, that we are in a much happier state. It doesn't really have much to do with pleasure or pain. Not only that, we can see how in our own lives and in the lives of others, that very often the endless seeking for pleasure is precisely what causes us suffering. And we see it a lot in various forms of addiction, you know, where there's an immediate, pleasurable hit, and then the mind is driven by the seeking for that pleasure, and it ends up in tremendous suffering. We see it in meditation, you know, looking for the pleasant set. I think I mentioned in the first half. You know, an experience, uh, it was a powerful experience I had in practice. Uh, it was after several years, and I was sitting, this was in Bodh in India, and the practice was going really beautifully. My mind had finally, after many years, gotten concentrated somewhat, and my body was open, and it was just felt like this body of light. You know, there was no tension, it was just this flow of light every time I sat. And it was very, very pleasurable. Then I had to go home. I ran out of money, and I had to go home to make some more money to go back, be able to go back to India. So I worked for a few months back here in the states. Went back to India, you know, panting for my body of light, and I got back, and it was not. It was a body of twisted steel. That's what it was. So I don't know what happened back here. But somehow, that was gone, and I spent two years struggling, two years of intensive practice. I was just pushing, trying to push my mind through you know, that, those sensations of twisted steel, looking, seeking, wanting the pleasurable feeling. It was incredible suffering. You know, in the seeking of the pleasant, I was creating so much suffering for myself and it took two years, you know, to figure this one out. I told you the other morning, the dullard, (laughs) don't take so long. What really brings us happiness? What doesn't? In saying all this, it's obviously not that There's something wrong with pleasurable feeling, it's fine. And when pleasurable feeling comes, it's great. We open to it, we experience the pleasure of it. But the happiness is in the non-clinging, in the non-striving, in the non-wanting. Again, this is something to really see in ourselves. The Buddha laid out, in a very systematic way as he does, you know, seven kinds of happiness. There are lists for everything. You know, and so the happiness of sense pleasures, the happiness we get from sense pleasures is just the first. You know, so it is, it's acknowledging, yeah, there's some happiness, but it's very, very fleeting. And it can be the cause of suffering if we go on uh, craving, you know, and we're attached to it there are many deeper layers, levels of happiness. You know, the happiness of concentration is far superior. And again, not theoretically, we we can feel this when our mind is really concentrated. Far superior happiness than some good taste or pleasant sight. You know, because it's so full, it's so complete, it's so whole. And the happiness of insight is far superior to the happiness of concentration. And you know, it just goes up the ladder like that. So it's not about thinking there's something wrong, you know, in the enjoyment of pleasure and the avoiding of pain. It just is a very limited understanding of what really brings us joy in our lives. In the context of the law of impermanence and the current situation law well, of impermanence and the Oh, in the frequent situation of I don't have a clue. How can one view current world issues such as climate change, increasing economic imbalance, apparent increasing resort to violence, etc.? Should one address and try to change them at this time? How to express compassion? And then what is the function of suffering? You know, it's true that Both in our meditation practice, we really come face to face with the suffering that exists in our own minds and bodies, and then as we're out in the world, you know, in some way we're inundated with reports or experiences of the suffering that exists. It's really quite, at times, overwhelming. I wouldn't so much ask the question, what is the function of suffering? Rather, what is the opportunity of suffering? Because the suffering, as, as Steve talked a bit earlier, it is the first noble truth. It's there. It's a reality, you know, of experience. And one has to be quite oblivious not to see it and not to feel it. Malajan well, talked of two relationships to suffering. He said there's suffering which leads to more suffering and suffering which leads to the end of suffering. Well, the real question is, in the face of this truth, how are we relating to it? What is the opportunity that it provides us? On a most basic level, it's a major wake-up call. when you think of what's necessary to cut through the patterns of our delusion, you know, it's like we are often sleepwalking through our lives, just caught in the habitual patterns, whatever they may be. When suffering hits in a big way, if there's enough interest, you know, and even a little bit of clarity, or some desire to understand. I think for many of us, it's what, it's what brings us to the Dharma. You know, the suffering is there, how can I understand this? You know, what is its cause? How is it being created? It sets many people on the path of awakening. The other opportunity that suffering offers us Is the opportunity of developing and strengthening compassion. Because when does compassion arise? It arises when we're willing to come close to suffering. That's the cause for compassion to arise. It's not always easy to do. You know, we don't necessarily want to be with our own pain and suffering, as you've seen many times. And very often we don't like to be with the pain and suffering of others. So what does that do? It closes off the wellspring of compassion. You know, we feel distant, we feel separated. But in our practice as we learn, okay, let me feel this, let me be with it, let me experience this first noble truth and see that it is not an individual problem. You know, because when we see suffering as an individual problem, often We get caught up in pity, either self-pity, we start feeling sorry for ourselves, or we pity someone else who's suffering. When we see suffering not as an individual problem, but as a universal condition, we're all in this together. Every living being is subject to suffering at one time or another. When we see the universality of it, then the response is not pity it really becomes compassion. How can I alleviate this? Can I, can I understand its causes? How can I alleviate the suffering of other beings? So when we open, when we're willing to open, and I think you'll find, and you know, most of you are experienced practitioners, so you know this already, That through, or as a fruit of our meditation practice, there is a greater sensitivity, a greater willingness to open to the suffering in the world. When this openness is there, then compassion really comes forth and is imbued with the motivation to act. So it's not not only being open and maybe feeling empathy for others, it's really that stronger feeling, how can I help? What can I do in this situation? I just finished reading a book, um, a really interesting book by Tracy Kidder, who's actually a local, lives in western Massachusetts. Uh, he's a Pulitzer Prize winner, and his, la- his latest book is called Mountains Beyond Mountains, and it's about uh, a doctor named Paul Farmer, who basically set out to change the world, and that's, th- that's the subtitle of the book. He worked, came from a very poor background, very smart guy. Uh, went to Harvard, Harvard Medical School, and he got he got an M.D. and a Ph.D. in medical anthropology at the same time. So this very very bright guy could have done anything. He ended up uh, going to Haiti, and out in the out in the countryside of Haiti, you know, in just the poorest conditions. It's said to be the poorest country in, in this hemisphere, you know, with people just tremendous suffering and where the major health organizations of the world basically had just written it off, you know, not seeing anything that could be done. And the whole book is just about... First, is not believing that nothing could be done, and spending time and building up this amazing health care situation for these poorest people, and then that becoming a model for doing it in other countries, and then treating TB in Russian prisons and in Peru. I and mean, The whole thing just became this huge worldwide uh, response in situations that conventional wisdom said nothing could be done. You know, it was a tremendously inspiring book. This is just. One story from the end of it he was always most concerned even as he was considering global health issues he was always kept that concern for the person right there who was suffering and it said that this last story was about his his walking um, you know off into the hills because there's no no transportation, walking seven, mi- uh, seven hours to visit two families, you know, who were, who were sick. And people were criticizing him. You know, you spent all that time for just two families and you could have been doing so much more with your time and criticizing for that use of his time. And so this is what he said. If you say that seven hours walk, is too long to walk for two families of patients. You're saying that their lives matter less than some others. And the idea that some lives matter less is the root of all that's wrong with the world. You know, it's it's such a beautiful and powerful expression of compassion as a response to suffering. I think it's also important to recognize that we have cycles of going in and going out. You know, the Buddha probably in his past lives must have spent lifetimes just practicing as a hermit in a cave. You know, if we just looked at that life, that one life, you know, what's that old guy doing? He's not helping anybody. And it was all part of the path to Buddhahood. So it depends on motivation. It's not that we should be judging people's actions and creating a hierarchy of compassionate action. You know, we'll all find our own way, our own interests, our own capabilities. What is our motivation behind what we're doing? Sometimes we're going in to purify ourselves so our actions can be more effective. Sometimes we're totally engaged with the suffering in the world. This is something I read from Georgia O'Keeffe, and it's really great. When we think in the face of suffering, you know, if it feels like it's just too overwhelming, I couldn't do anything, it's too much, you know, and she wrote, I've been absolutely terrified every moment of my life. And I've never let it keep me from doing a single thing I wanted to do. So I really like that. It's just the spirit, you know. I've been absolutely terrified every moment of my life. And I've never stopped, let it stop me doing from what I wanted to do. It's easy to see how I am aware of my sensations. It's easy to be aware of one's walking. But there are different types of thoughts. Let's say I'm working on a mathematical problem. When I am aware in that act, it seems impossible to be aware of anything, presuming anything else. The mathematical problem is all there is. There is awareness after the fact, but during the time there is no separation. Can you please let me know why this is so? In your daily life, outside of retreat, do you try to constantly note your thoughts? If no, why not? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> Regarding your upcoming talk on non-grasping, this was, this was uh, written a couple of days ago. Several years ago, you said to me, there's a place in the heart where there is a choice to want. If you can access that place, you can choose to let go of the wanting. Could you please talk more about one accessing the place in the heart of the choice to want and about choosing to let go of the wanting, grasping? That is how the how to of non grasping. So these three, uh, in one way, have to do with. understanding different kinds of thoughts and feelings. It's helpful to realize that in the world, we use our minds, or we engage our minds on different levels, and there are times when we are engaged in the conceptual level. We're using that level of mind, and there's no problem with that. And so, for example, with the mathematical problem or with reading a book or with really any kind of work that involves our mind, just entering into that conceptual realm, at that time we're not going to be mindful in the way we are here. You know, if you try to read a book mindfully, you're going to just start seeing black on white. You know, the mind is not going to put things together. So there's no problem with using that conceptual level of mind. It's it's an important part of how we live. Munindraji used to talk of what, what he called general mindfulness. That is, having developed enough mindfulness that even when we're engaged on the conceptual level, fully engaged in it, there's enough background mindfulness to be aware if some unwholesome state of mind arises. You know, so that as we're engaged in the conceptual process and we're just in it, but then if suddenly our mind gets filled with for whatever reason, you know, of one of the defilements of greed, of lust, of hatred, of ill will, whatever it may be, then that general mindfulness kicks in and oh yeah this has arisen so it's a great protection but in the absence of the defilements then we're just we're just playing on that conceptual level and it's fine <coughs> in terms of being mindful of thoughts in one's daily life it is a hugely important practice and even if we're not noting every thought that comes up still the practice of being aware as best we can of the thoughts of the patterns really gives us a chance not only to exercise some wise discernment what's skillful what's not but really to investigate some very deep dharma places so i want to i want to just share a recent experience i had Uh, in this vein, and it ties into that last question about finding the place of choosing to want. Uh, I talked about this a little bit in the staff group last week. You know, when I was down in New York that weekend doing that uh, fundraising thing for the Catskills, and in in driving back, I was with uh, a friend, one of the people on staff here at IMS. We were driving back, and I noticed in my mind the impulse to talk about something, to say something about what had happened over the weekend, but that really was about... It was, it was a self-enhancing thought, you know, it was something that was just, I had no reason to say other than it would enhance myself. Okay, so I, 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 I was driving and I saw this thought come up and I, you know, and I was mindful of it. And I said, well, you know, what's the motive here? You know, there's, there's absolutely no reason to say it. What was very interesting and what led to a further investigation was the amazing power of the seductive energy behind wanting to say it. Even, that, even as I saw, you know, I saw it was just a thought, I saw it, it was just an ego thing, and so I got really interested. I said, what? What is this? Why? What is the pleasure of this? You know, what's the pull? It was more than a pull, it was a push. So then, I I was really looking, I was kind of... Because it is a very interesting phenomenon, I mean... Why do we get caught in these ridiculous thoughts? So I looked and I saw that there was really, there was an energy, there was a physical energy, I could feel it in my body. It just... It just wanted to come out. And was just, I was just watching, I was just mindful. It took a lot of restraint. You know, I saw the impulse to say that little thing many, many times. It came up in the mind, and then... <laughs> and then I didn't. <laughs> I think the ability to actually first see the thought, so kind of catch it as a thought, and to be able to discern you know, Is it skillful? Is it unskillful? Is there any point in it? But then to go underneath the content of the thought to really see, well, what's what's the energy that's pushing it? And to come back and feel it in the body, that really allowed me just to be with it, to feel that energy, to feel the push, and then it came and went. And the thought arose in my mind with that same energy, and came and went, came and went, came and went, and then it was gone. So if we can trace back, I mean, this was a kind of, you know, I am thought. But with respect to the, you know, thoughts of desire, it's the same same process. We have the desire thought arise in the mind. The first step, of course, is seeing it. But the second step is, we can really go deeper than simply the seeing of the thought. What is the energy that's giving that thought its power? And we can feel it, it's very tangible. Once we can feel it in the body, and we're just with that sensation, we're just watching it, that's the place of choice. Do I act on it? Do I give expression to that energy? Or can I simply be mindful, feeling it and letting it come and go as everything does? So well, this is just like a you know, this was kind of a very ordinary situation that in the course of our regular lives happens, you know, many, many times a day. The whole area of speech is such a powerful arena for practice. You know, really catching the motive behind what we're going to say. The whole realm of desire, of wanting, you know, a huge area of our lives. We can catch it as that thought in the mind and then trace it back and then have the choice. So, in some way, I see everything we do here on retreat. I mean, in addition to the kind of clarity that comes out of the stillness and the concentration of the retreat itself, it's not limited to a retreat situation. I mean, you're really developing the ability and the tools. To have that quality of mindfulness just in the middle of everyday circumstances, you know, we can bring that level of clarity. So I think it is important you know, to understand that, the, if not the actual noting or labeling of thought, the awareness of thought to be really important. I was wondering what kind of practice or technique you would recommend using to meditate on one's own death, one's own impermanence. Intellectually, I know that I too will die, will get old, if I'm blessed with a long life. But a large part of me feels disconnected from this truth. Do you recommend a particular practice to cultivate this understanding. Was it best to stick with the practices we've been taught? And could you say a few words about practice during sickness, chronic illness, terminal illness, final week, and days? You also comment briefly on the use of drugs and morphine. I don't know if you remember the books by uh, Carlos Castaneda uh, about Don Juan. Uh, I'm sorry I didn't bring the quotation because it's really it's beautifully written. But this is just a a little paraphrase where he was talking about the power of keeping death at one's left shoulder, death as an advisor. You know, and he was saying that was speaking to uh, Carlos. You know, you've you've managed in your life to make self-pity your advisor. That's how self-pity is the, you know, what you turn to. Uh, and he was saying that death is a much more powerful advisor. That self-pity is nothing in comparison to death. You know that we should really keep the awareness of death present. So I think reflection on that is a powerful part of our dharma practice. There's one line in, uh, I think it's the Mahabharata, the ancient Indian epic, uh, where one of, the, one of the wise men in the book is saying to someone, <laughs> uh, that the most amazing thing in the world is that we see people dying all around us, and yet we don't really get that it will happen to us. You know, and I think that it's so true that somehow we're just living our lives not with the presence of death very immediate for most of us. You know, It's always something that happens to other people or something in some indeterminate future, and so it's not a very powerful advisor for us. The Buddha talked a lot about the reflection on death, you know, to really wake us up to what is important. And there are different ways of doing it. One reflection, you know, in, in the most general way, is, and it takes reminding oneself of this, even though we know it intellectually, but really to absorb it, that the end of birth is death. You know, that our lives are just getting shorter and shorter and shorter. That that's what's happening. And it's not, this isn't a mistake, or it's not that it shouldn't be happening. This is the dharma. This is the nature of things. So we reflect on the inevitability of death. We really take that in. That it is inevitable for all of us. And we reflect on the uncertainty of time of death. Because this is where most of us kind of fall into delusion. You know, we kind of think that, well, it's somewhere down the road. You know, and probably we think it's far down the road. And yet we really don't know. I mean, we really don't know. We really, really don't know. <laughs> you know, we don't. It's like so that goes back to, you know, my one of my mantras, anything can happen anytime. I mean just in the most you know one of the most distressing ways we learned this lesson. Uh, but it's of course happening every day, you know, but just you know, thinking back to, the, um, to 9-11. I mean, just the incredible, you know, all of those people just going to work a normal day. I mean, it's just... And things like that are happening all over the world. Not to speak of, you know, just the truth of getting ill, of disease, of accident. So we don't really know if we reflect on this and this is not i mean what's what's so odd in our cultures you know if we speak about death and the inevitability of a death and the uncertainty of time of death in normal circles i mean that's considered not polite conversation you know and you know it's morbid and why do you want to speak about that I mean, the Buddha is saying we should reflect on this every single day. You know, we should have this in the forefront of our consciousness. It's not morbid, it's just the truth. I mean, it's, it's surprising, isn't it? You know, that we just so cover the truth. I mean, even the way, you know, we deal with death and a dead body and corpses and You know, I've been at funerals and the corpses kind of are all dressed up and made up. They never looked so good in life. (laughs) Very different than the ten contemplations of corpses in Buddhist practice, (laughs) where you sit there and you know, you watch the corpse decompose. It's just a very different, very different attitude. So again, it's just to wake up to what's true you know and whatever reflection whatever reminder and even though we've been encouraging you not to you know get caught in thought even dharma thought and a lot of dharma reflection a few minutes of reflecting on death each day you know, will only serve your practice uh-huh. In terms of how to practice, you know, when in times of illness, chronic illness or terminal illness, just in a very kind of on the, on the gentle end of the scale, you know, every time we're ill, and it can be little, it can be having, you know, a cold or we don't feel well or just something relatively minor. all the way up through serious illness. I just see every time of illness really as practice for dying. You know, when we're dying, we probably are not going to feel super healthy. Probably. You know, we full of energy. It'll probably be... You know, if, if it's certainly due to illness or old age, we'll probably you know, get weaker and our faculties won't be as sharp and probably discomfort in the body. Well, we have a chance to practice now. How will our mind be with that? And this goes back to seeking pleasure and avoiding pain. If that's our measure of life, if that's our understanding of what brings happiness, at the time of death, it's going to be big trouble. And the Buddha talked about people who have that value as being one of the causes for fear at time of death. People ask them, why do people fear death? One of the reasons, those who are attached to pleasure, to sense pleasures. And it's obvious, if we have that attachment, then in a time when it's all leaving us, of course there's going to be fear and distress. So we can use illness, we can really use it as a powerful training in mindfulness, a training for dying. How will we be? You know, it's so often we rationalize in different ways our practice. Well, I don't feel well, you know, I'll just rest more. This is not a good time to practice. I'll wait till I feel better. You know, and it's not about resting or not resting. It's fine, you know, if one is ill and just one needs to rest. But can we open our awareness, can we open our mindfulness exactly to the condition of our body, of our minds, being mindful of that, mindful of the discomfort, mindful of the low energy, mindful of whatever's going on in our minds. There's um, some wonderful stories ever you have a chance to read a biography of Thoreau uh, describing his death, because he died very young, at the age 44 of TB. Uh, but he was remarkable, really remarkable, because he just had this understanding of death being absolutely a natural part of life. You know, that same deep wisdom he had about nature, he had about his own life. and He was saying how This is as he was dying. And again, this will be a paraphrase that his mind, something like, his mind was as contented in perfect disease as in perfect health, because his mind always conformed to the condition of his body. And it's just that sense of yes, mindfulness can embrace, can hold, can be aware. Of anything, but we have to let go of this compulsive habituation of always going for the pleasant and pushing away the unpleasant. Because As long as we're in that habit, then in the time of illness, in the time of death, it will be very problematic. There's a possibility of a much deeper peace, a much deeper happiness, and that's what we're practicing here. You, know, and you, have, you don't have to wait till you're ill. <laughs> you, know, you can practice it with the discomfort in the knee or the back or the shoulders. How are we with it? You know, see it all as training for dying. The practice really is exactly the same practice, I think, all the way up to the moment of death can we be mindful of what's arising in the moment? You know, whether it's the breath, sensations, thoughts, emotions, the same thing we're doing here. Moment after moment, after moment, after moment, after moment. Death consciousness, rebirth consciousness, moment, 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 moment. <laughs> it's the same practice. Mindfulness, not holding on. This was an interesting question at the end about, you know, for people who are dying and may be in a lot of pain, uh, what about the use of drugs or painkillers or morphine? Um, because, of course, usually we think of the practice and we do value that sense of clarity of mind, clarity of consciousness, which I think to the extent that we can have that, think would be a great blessing, and the stronger our concentration and power of mind, the better able we'll, we'll be able to do it. But somebody asked the Dalai Lama that question, and he gave a very interesting answer to me. They were asking about extreme pain, you know, at the end of life, and just you know where the mind was overwhelmed by the pain, and what about taking pain medication, and. His response was that uh, it was fine to take it. You know that actually it might ease the mind, make it easier to be mindful. But more interestingly to me was he said that the whole dying process, the process of consciousness, you know, as we're dying, is such a powerful, What's happening in consciousness is so powerful at that time. The level that the pain medication is happening, doesn't, it doesn't touch what's happening on the level of the transformation of consciousness through dying. You know? And so he felt that it wouldn't interfere at all. You know that whole dying process would just break through, and that the real challenge at that point is not, you know, on the level of the pain or the discomfort. It's what's happening in the mind at the time of death. Is that clear? Know. You know, it's just that that dying process is so powerful; it cuts through anything we may have taken. But that, that was the point. Mm-hmm. And so the, the importance, you know, even, if we, even if we make ourselves as comfortably as we can physically, the real importance is having trained our minds. So whatever is happening at the time of death, you know, in this great transformation of consciousness, we're able to have some stability at that time. Well, this is a big subject, an important one, and I think we really need to incorporate The truth, this truth of change, this truth of death, in a very vivid way in our lives. I find that being in nature is an important part of my practice, both in retreat and in ordinary living. However, sometimes I wonder if my interest in being in nature is perhaps just reinforcing my desire for pleasant sensory experiences. I wonder about this even more during retreat as we we are encouraged to guard our sense doors and stay connected with our body sensations. Can you comment on this? I think that there's a tremendously important place in practice for our experience and our relationship in nature. You know, in the Buddhist time, many people practiced out of doors, practiced in the forest. One of the the lines you read in the suttas often is, "Oh, monks, you know, there are the trees, there are the roots of trees. Practice now, lest you regret it you know, later." And I think we all have the experience of when we're in a natural environment, we're in the beauty of nature, it really can help us let all the defenses down. We feel a kind of relaxation. Trees don't judge. You know, do you ever go out and... It's harder to be neurotic in nature. It is, not only they're not judging us, but somehow I find that it just kind of they take on, they just absorb, you know, whatever kind of neurotic patterns are going on. It's like they just ease out in nature and we actually can come to this place of great stillness and beauty and calm. I don't think there's any problem at all. And Again, it's, it's a question of staying mindful, staying aware, so we're not just you know, lost in the daydreams of our minds as we're walking through the forest. Uh, but there's a way of being or sitting in the forest or doing walking meditation that is so uh, healing. Uh, I, I think it offers a lot. And even just being in situations of beauty, you know it has an effect. It's not about clinging to the beauty, but it's about appreciating the harmony. It's appreciating the, harm, the harmony of nature, the harmony of one's surroundings, yeah. and it has an effect on us. You mentioned, this, is, this was a uh, question from, uh, from earlier on, you mentioned that you may give a talk on the terms mindfulness, awareness, attention, knowing, consciousness, etc. Sounds like a tedious Dharma talk, but even after 25 years I still some, sometimes get confused. Uh, sometimes the teachers use the term awareness pointing to consciousness sometimes pointing to mindfulness, sometimes pointing to neither. (laughs) What is your understanding of awareness, and does it arise and pass away? Presumably, Neanderthal men and women spent their time exclusively in the present moment, neither reminiscing about the past nor planning for the future. So assuming that incidence of arhanship was no better than ours, (laughs) what's the missing piece? When they were bludgeoning, uh, presumably they were bludgeoning, and knew they were bludgeoning, (laughs) (laughs) prototypical mindfulness, uh, it's a little hard to read this, rarely if ever lost in the moment. What was it that kept wisdom in the heart from, that wisdom in the heart from emerging? So, I thought that, (laughs) just spend a few minutes trying to clarify terms. Uh, Consciousness, awareness, mindfulness, attention, bare attention, because it is confusing, you know, and as you have all noticed, we often use the same term in different ways. And just before coming in this evening, uh, at tea time, we were all, s- Carol, and Steve, and Kamala, uh, and Guy, and Linda, and Andy. we were all sitting around the table discussing how we use these terms. So first it's to understand that the translation from Pali into English is not always easy or precise. You know? And so you may hear the words used in different ways. But I'm going to give a stab at it. So take this provisionally, but as a maybe a place to start in understanding the difference. And we'll use just as a model, a basic Abhidhamma model of understanding. So consciousness. is defined as the knowing faculty. It's just what knows the object without anything built around it. It's simple, basic knowing. And they talk about, you know, there's eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, taste. So it's all of these different moments of consciousness knowing the different sense objects. Now, consciousness, this knowing, does not arise by itself. It arises with different mental factors, and this is where it can get confusing. Attention is a common mental factor, which means it's arising in every moment. And attention is that factor in the mind which just gathers all the other factors present and kind of directs it to the object. And so it's just a gathering and a directing toward the object. It's relatively superficial in that it's arising in every moment, whether we're... there's wisdom or not, greed or not, there's always attention if we're going to know anything. Right? if there's knowing of any object, in any circumstance, there always needs to be attention, which is just directing all the factors towards the object. That factor of Vitaka, which Guy talked about, you know, is one of the jhanic factors, that's a factor which gives, doesn't arise in every moment, it arises in some moments, when it's cultivated, and that gives a little more oomph to the attention. It actually, it's like striking the object, Okay, so there's a little more connection there. Mindfulness is a factor which doesn't forget what the object is. It's that non-forgetting the object. So, just in talking among ourselves, one word which might express that is just the noticing of what the object is. Because we can, we're often just through the day, you know, we're doing various things, and we know. It's not that we're unconscious. You know, there's knowing going on, but we're not necessarily noticing, oh, it's this, it's this, it's this, it's this. Right? so mindfulness is that noticing non- Forgetting, attention, vitaka, they are all ethically neutral. They can be associated with wholesome states, they can be associated with unwholesome states. Mindfulness is always wholesome. So that's why this factor of mindfulness is so important. It's always wholesome and it brings the other wholesome factors to it. It, Wisdom is another factor, and wisdom has the function of really seeing deeply, or illuminating deeply, into the nature of things, into the three characteristics. And so you could think of mindfulness as being the access to wisdom when we're really mindful of what's happening we're not forgetting and the the image uh, that's often used mindfulness really plunges deep into it it's like the difference between a cork bobbing on the water and a stone dropped in the water you know the attention is is a little bit like the cork it's just right on the surface mindfulness really is deeply connected noticing what the object is not forgetting because of that mindfulness, it gives us access to wisdom. It gives us access to that opportunity to really see the nature of things, to see the impermanence, to see the selflessness. Are you with it so far? So consciousness is just knowing, that's all. Along with consciousness, you can't separate these things. Along with consciousness, there's always attention. There's sometimes vitaka, there's sometimes that deeper, striking the object. There's sometimes mindfulness, which is that quality of not forgetting. There's sometimes wisdom, of really illuminating the, the nature, the characteristics. One, The way we use the word awareness, and this is the word that's most often used in different ways, Sometimes, we use awareness as a synonym for mindfulness. You know, you're mindful of the object, you're aware of the object. And sometimes, we use the word awareness for that state of mind which is called satipanya, that is where there's both mindfulness and wisdom. So that awareness is really a deeper, a deeper state. then the question of whether awareness arises and passes away. This is awareness of the deeper state, and maybe even deeper than the deeper state. And it's just to know that that question has been debated by Buddhist schools for 2,600 years. Some schools describe it one way, Some schools describe it another way. Some say that awareness itself is just this changing, part of this changing, arising and passing away. Some schools say that there's an awareness free of all defilement, you know, that has been given different names, the pure mind or pure jitta or that's not arising and passing away, that's different than you know, the aggregates, what I would suggest is not having an opinion about it, particularly, or at least not being attached to your opinion, but rather just to keep looking and to see how you are experienced, to go to the depth of your own experience of the nature of consciousness, of knowing, seeing how all of these mental factors are working, and and really coming to the culmination of the path. And then we see that all descriptions are simply concepts. And you can use many different concepts. There are many different fingers that point to the moon. No, this finger's right. No, this finger's right. To get into arguments or attachments about which concepts we use really misses the point. You know, we want to use the finger to look at the moon. You know, and so we want to use all of these words of awareness, of mindfulness, of wisdom as pointers you know, for what we need to do in practice. Uh, and then we, we know from, for ourselves experientially. We're quite a bit over. (laughs) (laughs) Gay. Got carried away. Let's sit for a couple of minutes. (laughs) With Satipanya. The merit of our practice be joined with the merit of all the wholesome actions of the three times past, present, and future. Together, may it all be dedicated to the welfare, the happiness, and the liberation.